Just a brief note before we get started, this episode is part of a special series we recorded at the Chemicals America Conference in Fort Worth, Texas. Rather than our usual in-house attorney guests, these episodes feature executives and other business leaders from outside of the legal department discussing some of the biggest issues facing the chemical industry today. We hope longtime listeners appreciate this temporary shift in perspective, and we welcome new listeners, especially those of you in the chemical industry, joining us for this special series. Now, on with the show. Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Henriquez, a commercial litigator with the law firm Womble, Bond Dickinson. With me, as always, is my producer, Brian Ewing. We are here in Fort Worth recording a special series dealing with the chemical industry. And uh, today, our guest is Koshik Vashi, who's a professional engineer. He's vice president of engineering and process development at DanChem, located in Danville, Virginia. Koshik, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Great. Um, I think we're going to talk some about process and particular process safety, but let's start with just a little more information about you and, and DanChem. Tell our listeners a little bit about what DanChem does and about the company. So DanChem is a small specialty chemical company, mainly organic chemicals. We're a site that is 43 acres, 21 of which are developed, 114 employees, two dedicated plants, meaning just one product line that goes to dedicated customers, two different dedicated customers. And then we have a multipurpose plant, which has about 20 reactors, uh, all sorts of support tanks, utilities, which where we have 20% churn every year. So the the impact for us is always trying to fill the plant. Every year we lose 20% of the products. All right. Got you. And is it toll manufacturing? So it's all toll manufacturing. Okay. We have we have a product line that, that we own, but it's a very small percentage, probably about half a percent of our overall business. The okay. rest is all so most, toll So it's basically all contract tolling. Yep. Uh, a couple that are regular customers, those two uh, plants, but then right. the other one where you're always getting in new smaller projects. Right. Yep. And then tell us a little bit about your role. What, what do you do for Dan Kim? So I'm in the engineering and process development department. That is, so with existing processes, the two dedicated plants, it's making sure we run optimally. So are the yields correct, cycle times correct, uh, quality correct. And then on the multipurpose side of new products coming in, it's evaluating all the opportunities we get as they come in. So we might get, uh, let's just take 100 opportunities a year. Of that 100 opportunities, we'll whittle it down to, I don't know, 20, 30. Mm-hmm. Let's say, okay, these are potentially viable. And then those then get whittled down to what goes in the plant. So it's, a lot of it is vetting the new business coming in. And then the other aspect is making sure we maintain sustainability by keeping current products optimized. Gotcha. Sounds good. And tell us a little bit about your background. You have kind of, kind of interesting path. Okay, to yeah, so I'm, uh, I'm a chemical engineer by training. Uh, have an MBA as well from uh, from God's country, Chapel Hill. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's music to the ears of two North Carolinians, and I've got I've got a student and two graduates from Chapel right. Hill. So yes, and so I grew that, up uh, I grew up in Zimbabwe, or what was Rhodesia. Went to school in England, to South Bank University in London. Did my chemical engineering there. Once that was complete, I went back to Zimbabwe, which was by then Zimbabwe, no longer Rhodesia. 
I worked there for a couple of years and then left in 1989 because the political situation was tenuous. Mm. So it was time to leave. By then, my family had already moved to the U.S., meaning my mom, my brothers, everyone else from my dad's side of the family was in the U.S. I had no intention of coming till till they summoned. Till you had to. <laughs> well, they so they summoned all the Asians, all Asian males, and Asians in Southern Africa are, are Indians, mm. East. East Asians, one Friday afternoon to government house. And we were advised that if the Asian community did not donate $5 million to the party for the upcoming election, there was a teacher training college next to a predominantly Asian suburb. And if those students chose to riot, they may not be able to do anything about it. Wow. So it was time to leave at that point. Because my uncle was very heavy in the liberation movement came back to Zimbabwe, but it just became, it became very Orwellian. Mm. So the animal farm routine, you know, all pigs are equal, but some are more equal than others. Wow. Yeah, so I imagine that was a pretty scary time. It was, I mean, there. just to be, because it's a naked threat. So it's, you know, this is not what we fought for. Right. And then it was just time to leave. I mean, for us, it, as a professional, it would have been very difficult to continue to work in Zimbabwe at that right. point. Did How you, old were you at that point? 26. That must have been, I can't imagine dealing with something like that as a 26-year-old. I mean, you know, you're still a kid. I mean, you're right. still a yeah. And then we left with nothing. Wow. Because you mm-hmm. couldn't take currency out. You couldn't take anything else out. So. Were you married at the, that point? Or? I was courting my wife. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> How did you end up in North Carolina? Oh, so that was, we came to Virginia first. Northern Virginia is where my family was. Okay. Um, Looking for a job, it was tough to get anything at the time. So I'd, I'd interviewed at Mobile Exxon because I worked for ESSO in Zimbabwe. And I interviewed with the State Health Department in mm. Virginia. And I was waiting on Exxon, got nothing from them. State Health Department offered me the job, decided to take it. I did not know where Danville, Virginia was. So when I was talking to the guy, I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I can drive from oh. Stratford, <laughs> Stafford. Yeah. To Richmond. I thought the job was in Richmond. And the guy, it was just silence on the phone. Finally, the guy's like, uh, you know, time. it's like four and a half hours away, right? I'm like, what? But we had to do it. I mean, you know, no money. We had to kind of move mm-hmm. on. So became a district engineer with the Virginia Department of Health. So for two okay. years, I was actually in with the health department. I got you. In inspecting Danville. water, wastewater mm-hmm. systems. Yeah. For, for Amherst, Bedford. Campbell County. Wow. Um, so it was actually it was great. It, it, for someone coming to the States, didn't know the country, didn't know Virginia, the training they gave you was fantastic because they sent you to every part of the state to actually mm. learn how water, wastewater systems operate. But as a result, you got to see very different parts of the country and to see some of the poverty, especially in Western Virginia. Yes. It's, in, it's incredible. Yeah, no, I think some people coming to the United States assume <laughs> no, everybody. No, exactly. Right, right. you assume everybody's rich and yeah. wealthy and everything's yeah. developed, and that's not the case. You can go, whether it's Western Virginia or Eastern North Carolina, you, yeah. can, you can find a lot of power. And then there are independents. The so there were some inspections mm. I went on. I had to go with the sheriff. Mm. So flak jacket and a sheriff. Wow. Interesting. And then, so when, when did you, did you do your MBA at Keenan Flagner after that? Or right, when? so I joined Dan Chem a couple of years after being in Virginia. So at that point, it was owned by a British company, British multinational called Hickson & Welsh, mm-hmm. or Hickson International, based in Leeds. 
and I joined them as a chemical engineer. So my wife was teaching aerobics. One of the ladies in the class mentioned to her that, hey, there's an opening at this chemical plant in Danville. Would your husband be interested? And, and that's how I got the job. Wow. So started in permitting as a permit engineer, actually a process engineer for one of our dedicated plants. But our permits were a shambles. And because I was with the health department, they just assumed, yeah, this guy will know regulations. So <laughs> <laughs> that's what I got into. There you go. Um, and at the time, the, the process safety management regulations had just been promulgated. So it was, how do we comply with those regulations? So that's how I kind of got involved with process safety. So and you then, had to like do crash course in all these various, is it other regulations that people- That's right. And actually, so SOCMA was a fantastic resource at that time. So we, you know, we were part of SOCMA. I joined a lot of the environmental committees, became the chairman of the Has Waste Committee, mm. you know, on the Air Committee, Process Safety Management. So it was a great, so the 1990s for me, I think, were a watershed in the U.S. just in terms of environmental and safety regulations. No pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> so it was great. I mean, it was a great time to learn all that stuff, actually, because it is, I think, in the chemical industry, safety and the environment are, are very closely tied. It, it, you can't separate it like making widgets. Mm -hmm. it's, it's part of what you do. It's classical chemical engineering on the process safety side. Yep. And Hickson's put me through the MBA. Ah, they did. Oh, <laughs> and great. then I left, so they were not very happy. <laughs> <laughs> and so you joined Dan Kim in what year? 1991. Okay. February 1991. And left Dan Kim in... Ooh, just before 9-11, so um, June of 2011. Gotcha. But you're back. I'm back, yes, because <laughs> it's home. I have a lot of sentimental attachment, because when I joined the plant, we didn't have a lot of the equipment we had now. Hmm. By the time I left, we had a lot of the equipment. We, we moved a lot of processes from the UK. We installed these horizontal reactors, which we're now known for in terms of having the largest suite in the chemical industry. Hmm. So there's a lot of, uh, I guess I'm sentimental at heart. I, I hate to admit that, but I am. And what, what is, for a non-chemistry person, what's a horizontal reactor? So a horizontal what's reactor is essentially a vertical reactor looks a lot like your washing machine. Mm -hmm. Everything's top-loaded, your agitation's around the side. The horizontal reactor looks like your dryer okay. with the flights on the side. And everything, everything lays flat. You have a lot more surface area exposure uh, gotcha. and a lot more power that you can put into it. Uh, okay. Horsepower in terms of agitation. All right. And that's something Dan Kemp's known for. That's something, yeah. horizontals. Well, at least we like to believe we have <laughs> the largest suite of horizontal reactors in the industry. Great. How else have you seen the company evolve and the industry evolve during that, that period? So a lot of consolidation. You know, whereas before, I'd, I'd say early 90s, late 90s, a lot of the smaller tolling companies were owned were entrepreneurial. They were owned by someone that's, that either left a big company because they didn't want to deal with the bureaucracy. And then as we've moved along, there's either been consolidations or they're selling out because there's no, the owner's children do not want to be in that industry or prefer to be doing something else. So I think they're selling, they're cashing out. And now it, there's a lot more, you know, venture capital money hmm. in these businesses. And then, and again, further consolidation as, as they kind of consolidate, build the portfolio, flip the portfolio. So to me, I think that's probably one of the biggest things. And then getting young people in, because between 98 through, I'd say, 2010, 2011, 
a lot of the chemies that came in wanted to do something other than a dirty job, right? So you see everything on TV that's computers and you can slide your finger across the screen and everything happens. That's not the chemical industry. So we lost <laughs> a lot of engineers that didn't come in. So there's a huge gap between the engineers or just borderline boomers that'll retire, young engineers, and there's not a lot in between. And for me, that, that I think should be a little bit of a concern just because you've lost some of that experience. And how do you bring it to play in terms of making processes safe? But you are seeing younger people. We are now, yes. So we're seeing a lot more younger people coming in now. But it's that, that gap between the boomer gen, so essentially Gen X. Right. Uh, uh, gen Z or... Uh, uh, Millennials. Yeah, that there was that right. uh, folks not interested. And so there's... Right, and because they were offered a lot more money going to, um, you know, dot-coms. I right. mean, that, we that whole dot-com boom was between 2001 and 2010. And there is some, I think that's an interesting point to bring up, because there is that risk of losing some of that institutional knowledge. Right. If it isn't passed on, I mean, yeah, you've got the training, these younger kids have their the training and the, uh, you know, the academics, but you as a veteran of the industry know that there are certain things that you learn by doing. And, right. and you, you, are, you don't even learn by doing, you learn by doing with someone who's done it and, and, yeah. and, and in the trenches. And if that doesn't happen, then you lose some of that. Really yeah, that mentorship. So you're not having to relearn, you, you know, you're not recreating the wheel. So I, th I think part of it is, I mean, so, you know, part of that change also is that the larger companies have also consolidated. The older employees get offered the retirement because yeah. it's cheaper to have <clears throat> someone younger, but you're losing a lot of knowledge. As a result, a lot of contract manufacturers now have the process knowledge of technology that's actually owned by someone else. Yeah. And they don't have that process knowledge. Hmm. So yeah. I think the other dynamic that's at play, I mean, for me, from my perspective, is we're a guardian of that knowledge, so we have to make sure we protect their knowledge, even though they may not know that. Right, knowledge. they may not know their own process because you've been doing it for so long. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. That you're really doing it, or refining it, right. revising it, those kind of or, things. Or just know the nuances, and, and they right. won't know the nuances. Well, when I asked, I asked Brooke uh, DiDomenico, who was a previous podcast guest, what she would like Koshik uh, to talk about. She said process safety. So let, let's turn to that because you've obviously gotten that experience. Maybe you can pass it down via the podcast, if not, if not directly at other people. Give us an overview of process safety concerns and then maybe some you know, practical things for folks to be considering if they're in your role or aspiring to your role on a process safety side. Hmm, that's a hard question. <laughs> Let me break it down. So, and yeah, yeah, maybe let's just start first. What does the term process safety mean for, so, for someone in your so process safety means how do we run a reaction or a process so that as far as we possibly can, we make it inherently safe. So an example would be, you know, you have atom A, atom B, they react or molecule A, molecule B, they react to give you molecule C. You know they exotherm, so it generates a lot of heat. Maybe it's in a solvent. So what happens, a potentially unsafe reaction or harder to control reaction would be you put all your ingredients in the vessel and you start. <laughs> See what happens. Which right. is how, there used to be a lot of uh -huh. polymerizations that used to be that way. Right. 
or you say, okay, I'm going to separate A and B, I'm going to feed them into the system, and I'm going to add the catalyst over a period of time. So not all the energy is accumulated in that one spot. So for me, that's the process safety aspect is saying, okay, can we design that? Sometimes as a contract toll manufacturer, you don't have that leeway because your customer's bringing you the technology. There's only so much manipulation you can do. So then what other safety systems do you add? Do you add a deluge? So if it starts to run away, can you quench it? Mm -hmm. So just be like adding more solvent back or adding water or adding something that'll actually stop the reaction. A lot of times there's some assumptions in process safety that certain things will stop a reaction because that's what literature says and sometimes it doesn't work on all systems. Mm. So part of that is also testing it and making sure we get the reaction calorimetry that tells us this is the reaction, yes, and a short stop will work. Um, gotcha. So you have to design the way to stop the reaction right. as part of that process. You can't. Right. You obviously can't wait till you see a reaction out of control to say, you know, what are we going right. to do? So you can, and, but you well, shouldn't. You shouldn't, right? I mean, you <laughs> might do that and say, right. well, we'll use our fire extinguisher right. or something else, you know. Right. Which, you know, but you, you, because of the nature of the reaction, right. you know. And for me, that's classical the, chemical engineering. So I think that there's mm -hmm. there can sometimes be a focus on cuts, scrapes, trips, falls. And yes, that's important. You want to make sure your workforce is available. You want to make sure they're capable. They're not hampered at all. But a reaction gone bad is a big right. deal. Right. That's you know, the. It, it, I think, it that's hurts the a lot more people. The explosion right? so, or the contamination right. or something. You know. And for me, for Hickson and Welsh, right? So Hickson and Welsh, we had an explosion at the site in 1992 mm. in Leeds, in Castleford. Nine people killed. Oh wow. A year later, we had a fire at a plant in Ireland. Just got the fire under control. Plant burned to the ground. Oh, wow. Because they ran out of fire water. Mm. That essentially, for me, in my mind at least, Hickson was never able to survive that. Yeah. Today's world is even more complicated in that our risk tolerance is less. We don't want any risk. Right. As right. a society. Right. An explosion where one person dies right. is going to be viewed as catastrophic. No, and, and I think with social media, with what can get out, with how it can escalate, it's even more important we kind of manage process safety. So what are the fire hazards? What are the dust hazards? Reaction hazards? Because it, it does, it, it, it spirals out of control fairly quickly. And managing that is takes some discipline because there's always the business pressure to bring in a process quickly. But I think there's times we've just got to stop and say, okay, what, what really are the hazards? Have we really reviewed them properly? And take a step back to say, let's follow the basic principles of chemical engineering to manage it. The other aspect is change. So equipment's going to break down. A lot of the plants around now are, are older. Mm. So how do you maintain the equipment? If you have a failure, how do you keep the process going and not compromise the process. So management of change is a big thing. And we tend to focus management of change on equipment or the process itself. And I think one aspect we fail to do is management of change of people. Mm. So as people turn over or move, because now the other aspect of the workforce today is it's a lot more mobile. Right. So people will move a lot faster than they used to before. So it's just how do you manage that change? If you lose some of that experience, how are you actually making sure you've captured it? Where have you captured it? Mm. And it doesn't have to be super complicated. It's just 
how do you put the systems in place so you, you have a roadmap that says, okay, this is where I can go look for the information. What are some examples of how you do that? So database is one in terms of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of, the good thing about software and the, the software industry today is there's a lot of software out there that actually helps you manage work orders, equipment integrity, where you have it documented, for want of a better word. It's in electronic format, but you have it documented. But again, it's setting the roadmap because now we're inundated with so much information. Mm -hmm. If we haven't indexed it, how do you find it? So it's just getting the index system correct. So that's on the equipment. On the processes, it's in, in the batch. So for us, we primarily, everything is on a batch sheet. So it's written, it's a document. Typically, most batch procedures are 20, 30 pages long. And it's sequential steps. Mm -hmm. And you document the sequential steps. And is a safety process something that's also on that part of that batch sheet would yes, be a way to right. quench or stop the reaction? Yeah, so for, for us, what, the way we have it is, so, so there's, there's two aspects to process safety. There's the regulatory side, which has certain triggers that say, okay, if you have 10,000 pounds of flammables, you fall under the OSHA PSM standard. Okay. If you have so there's certain chemicals that are more toxic, so something like phosgene will have a lower trigger. It might be three, 400 pounds. And then it has a very specific criteria you have to have. And then that is just saying, what are the chemicals? What is critical? And we put that in our batch sheets. There's some people that do it differently. There's some people that'll put that in another document and then just have the batch sheet as one. Hmm. But for us, we find that it's simpler to have it all in one spot. So you're not having to go dig for the information. Yes, it makes a batch sheet long. Right. But at least it's all there. We haven't progressed yet to a electronic system so say putting a procedure on an ipad mm -hmm. and part of that is just saying in a chemical environment if you get any kind of chemical on that screen what happens is the integrity there oh right so how do we make sure halfway through running a process someone doesn't the computer doesn't crash and, and then what are you going to do right uh, so that's why we we, we, still use on, physical. we still use paper but it'd be nice to get an electronic system at some point and you do have systems that are linked that can do that but then the amount of resource you have to put in to make sure you're actually verifying the program, mm -hmm. verifying it works, and then every time you change a process, you'll have to change the programming. It, it just sucks up a lot of resource that a lot of companies don't have. Right. And then the last bit is the people change, and that's what we miss. We, we typically don't cover that. So if someone if, mm -hmm. whose key leaves, how do we actually document what they were doing? Did they have all this stuff? Typically, they're out of the gate before you even think about it. So if I'm understanding, each time you get a new process in, you know, right. on your plant, where you're, you're going to have to, you're going to do a batch sheet, but you're also going to design some process safety around that in terms right. of what are the parameters, how do you control or stop the reaction. And then do you do training on, you know, with the folks so they know how to do that or what, how yeah, they decide so, whether the so reaction's are? a new process, we, we, we develop a little PowerPoint that says this, these are the raw materials, this is the process. That's quite generic because what might happen is you might start at a five liter scale and a year later you might be at a thousand gallon scale. Mm. So while the basics of the process stay the same, there's certain things that change like quantity. So we don't want to put that in there because if that changes, you've got to change the PowerPoint slides. So we try and make <laughs> it reasonably generic so we're not having to go through that change. And then the batch sheet actually covers the quantity changes. So that's how we've elected to do it, so that it's, it's fairly simple. It is, I mean, you're dealing with 
I guess one of the difficulties for engineers is making it so that a non-engineer can read it because the operators are non-engineers. Right. So how do we make sure they actually understand what's being said? So we do quite a bit of work on that just to make sure mm -hmm. we write it in a way that anyone can understand it. Gotcha. What have you found to be the big, the, is, there, is there a most common factor in things that cause a problem, cause a, a, an accident, and how have you tried to combat that? Yeah, so uh, probably under, for us at least, um, eliminating the human error site. So if we can automate it, if there's some interlocks we can put, we'll try and do that so that we're not depending on an operator to intervene and make the, the stop on a process. Because if mm -hmm. they get involved in something else, they may not see it, they may not notice right. it if there was at, in some other part of the plant. So how do we automate it or, or error-proof it? so that we're not depending on human intervention, especially for the critical parts. I, th I think the other side of it is we can get caught up sometimes in that it has to be a very elaborate evaluation of the safety risks. And not ev every process poses the same risks, so right. you don't have to follow the same methodology because what tends to happen then is people will pencil whip it. If you say you, you have to, we can be quite prescriptive sometimes and I think the trick is to make it not so prescriptive so that if it's not as high a risk process, your evaluation is a little bit different, mm -hmm. can move a little bit faster, gives people the leeway to do it. Otherwise, they just won't. I mean, they'll, they'll start pencil whipping everything because it is, it's an onerous, it can be an onerous process. And, and what do you mean by pencil whipping? They'll go through the motions, but they haven't really thought about what the issues could be. Gotcha. And they're going through the motions because they feel like that's what's dictated. Right. But not. And they know that. But they this, don't do they know the for this process, right? Exactly. If we're right. simply putting salt in water. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and engineers, you know, we're, we're notorious for just saying, well, you know, pump A into the reactor. Well, where's the pump? Where's the hose? What type of hose? What type of construction? Because some of these chemicals will actually solvate, the, they'll dissolve the hose. Mm hmm. That'd be bad. So if you're not thinking about it, and, and if you're leaving it to that operator to decide, right, they're mm -hmm. under pressure to produce. Right. They'll grab so, whatever so, hose is closest. Exactly. So just making sure we kind of think of all those things, especially in multipurpose plants, because it's, you don't have dedicated lines. Mm -hmm. you, you have a lot of portable equipment, either on wheels, uh, hoses, that kind of thing. So how do you manage that aspect of it as well? So that that's, I mean... Back to your thing, that's probably the biggest issue is, is just making sure that initial equipment setup is correct and that we help the operators set it up that way. It makes me think about like uh, the diesel pump at the gas station. Yep. You, you can't put, uh, at some point we figured out like, this is how you stop this from happening. Correct. Make the diameter of- Make the nozzle bigger, exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. Smaller than the diesel pump and mm -hmm. that way you people, but that's if you're, equipment is mobile if you're using right. this for various things and it, then the ability to grab the wrong thing becomes a lot easier right. and so how do you once you acknowledge that how do you then make sure that folks don't so make those types of mistakes so for certain chemicals we it's a very similar design criteria you'll have hose connections that are unique to that particular chemical or that particular pump so that it can't be used mm anywhere else in the plant. Or you simply hard pipe it. You simply say, okay, this part's not going to be portable. 
this is actually going to go in hard piped. And then our batch instructions will always have, because we change, you know, so we'll do campaign, what we call campaign structures. So make 10 batches of product A, then 20 batches of product B, might be just two batches of product C, then back to product A. So you, you constantly change a campaign. So that setup instruction now is quite critical in terms of what do we need to have and what's very what's key to that setup to make you know not just from a safety side but a quality side as well because the two are again for me in the chemical industry those two are hand in hand it's very different from other industries do you spend time actually on the floor like looking either for problems or making sure people have followed the the bat sheets or the process or does somebody else do that like a inspection side how, how is that handled yeah so the on new processes the process engineer assigned to that process makes sure that that setup is set properly. On what we call core processes or repeating processes, it's typically the plant supervisor, the operator, and, and there's check-offs and sign-offs that they have to do, mm -hmm. and then periodic audits. But new processes, is, it will be the process engineer that gotcha. checks it. Interesting. Good. I know we're beginning to run out of time. Any other practical tips you'd give to other people that may be you know, dealing with process safety that you can bring based on your experience? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in the PHAs, the process hazard analysis, so there's a bunch of methodologies that can be used. I think it's making sure you break up those PHAs. They can be mind-numbing, so they can be, you know, if you do it all in a day, by the afternoon, people are not focused enough. So I think you have to break it up and just make sure you, you put it into bite-sized chunks so that Everybody's fresh. Everybody's thinking about what all the problems are. And then putting the right kind of risk ranking to it. Because the other side of it is you can risk everything as dangerous. Mm -hmm. And then you lo it loses its value as well. So it's, it's just making sure people are fresh when they do the process hazard analysis is, is the big thing I see. And, and making sure the group's engaged. So your facilitator, whoever's facilitating it, has to be aware of the group. Should really listen to the group. Gotcha. Um, or you're not going to get the value of having a multifunctional team. They'll tend to just say, yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yeah, Let, Let's just sense. get it done with. What is the danger scale? How does it, what is it? So is risk it a numeric be, scale or a descriptive scale? So it varies by company. Okay. But it would be, so you'd say, okay, what's the likelihood of this happening? Some companies will say, is, could it happen once every batch? Could it happen once every 10 batches? Could it happen once every 100 batches? Mm -hmm. Or is it just totally unlikely? And, and you, you develop your number system based gotcha. on that. And then you say the risk. So if it happened, right. what's going to happen? Yeah. What's the risk? Right. You know, is someone going to get a f paper cut? Is someone going to get their throat cut? Right. <laughs> and then you multiply the two, mm -hmm. and it gives you a number. And then you'll say, okay, you know what? If it's above a certain ranking we have to do something before the process starts because the chance of something happening and the risk if it happens are so high, we want to eliminate it. Gotcha. But if something's just a paper cut, you say, you know what, maybe sometime in the life of the process, it would be good to mm -hmm. do it. And then you kind of move on. That makes sense. Any other tips? Not really. Just right. stay focused. That sounds good. That sounds good. And if people want to get in touch with you, Dan, because they like what they've heard or something else, yeah. is there a good way? Are you on 
LinkedIn or is there a website they LinkedIn, should go to? Except right. I, my discipline on LinkedIn is not that great. I think the last posting on there is my job from 12 years ago. All right. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like I, I've got your email as uh, kvashi at dancam.com. So yep. that would be a good way to get that a hold of you. That would be a good way to get a hold of me. Terrific. Yeah. Sounds good. Well, I appreciate you sharing some of your wisdom and experience. I enjoyed no, thank hearing you guys. About Hopefully it was useful. Your background. I think it was good. I'll remind our listeners they can find previous episodes and subscribe to the podcast at WombleBondDickinson.com or on iTunes, Google Play Store, or SoundCloud. I appreciate everyone listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of WombleBond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.